Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. It's, uh, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. My, my name's Daniel, and uh, I'm going to be uh, sharing and continuing on our vision series um, called The Vision. Um, we are fast approaching the end of it. Next week is our, is our final week, and it's, just been, it's been great just to be able to, A, reflect back on what God has been up to um, in our midst, and the... Um, the work he's been doing in, in the midst of our community, um, we, we just love that, uh, that this is a church not just of um, going through the motions, but it's actually a church of people passionately following Jesus and living that out in their everyday. And we're just, um, I love hearing a couple weeks ago some of the testimonies um, of that transforming work, of that renewing work in people's lives, hearing how people were going deeper. And next week we're going to have some more uh, testimonies as well. Um, one, of the, one of the series we did earlier in this year was called Deep Wells, and I just so appreciated the language of Deep Wells, of at this time, this place, God is looking for places to dwell. He's looking for people to come and make his home in and settle in, and that is us. We are those people, and he, he wants to go deeper within us. He wants to help us dig deeper wells um, so he can indwell and from that, overflow to those around us um, to actually be people of light and hope and joy and freedom, of peace, of what we're called to be as followers of Jesus. And so um, it was a significant series, and I think it really highlighted the invitation to us as deepening disciples. Um, now, quick, quick Disciple 101 for you. If a disciple is someone who follows Jesus... When are you a disciple? What's your thoughts? Is it 11.15 to 12.45 on a Sunday? Mm. All the time. You're a disciple all the time, is the answer. When do you do, do your discipleship? Everywhere, all the time. Thank you. Love it. And why do we live as disciples? Um, we, I'm going to ask this one for you. We, <laughs> we live as disciples, to be partakers of God's kingdom and in God's kingdom for this time and place. You've been called to follow Jesus. He has called, called you to follow him and to walk that journey out in this time and place to see his kingdom come and grow and expand. And there is an incredible... Vi- Sorry, I just discovered the chewing gum thing here from last week. <laughs> um, Park that. Um, yes, we're called to be disciples in this time and place. And that is, all of this is encapsulated in our vision. Um, the vision of our church is to be a church of passionate, committed disciples devoted to Christ's alternative for this world. We're called to do this everywhere, all the time. And we're called to partake in his kingdom or Christ's alternative for the world, which is his kingdom. And so as we continue on this series and as I kind of land some thoughts today, um, I think we get discipleship. We understand that we are, we are disciples of Jesus and we're called to follow him. And uh, if you want to um, go back and listen to the series, I encourage you to, 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 to delve into that a little bit further. But I want to zoom in today on 
the practice of doing our discipleship in community, of living out and practicing our discipleship in community with others. So uh, to take us on a little bit of a journey, I'm going to go back to the beginning of Scripture, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, where we have God who's spoken creation into being. He has uh, separated the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the birds and the fish and all the animals. And then we get to this point in verse 26, and he says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And it's interesting, it's worth noting, noting the language in there. It's not let me make mankind in my image, in my likeness. He uses the language of us and our, implying some basic theology that God is community. And we understand this today as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God is in community, has always been in community from the very beginning. And out of this, as we see in this passage, he creates us, he creates mankind. And so we, you, are created out of community and for community. We are community beings. That is part of who we are, that's innate to us. And it is important that we begin to understand the, the brevity of that and the, the beauty of that. Um, Kevin Watson uh, says, <clears throat> says this, we, uh, sorry, you were made for community. You were made for connection. You were made to connect with the God who created you in love and you were made to connect with other people that God created in love. This is a beautiful truth. Um, that we need to allow to permeate into our, into our beings, but also permeate culturally through, through our community, through our church community here. That we are made for community and we're made to connect with God and others as well. And just a side note in this, if you, if you only know God in the singular, I just want to perhaps suggest that there is more for you to, to discover of who God is. God as the Father, as the Son in Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit. Um, there is more of us, more of God to encounter and to understand um, by this very truth that God is community himself. So to look at some examples of this, of, of community, um, we're going to begin by looking at Scripture and look how, how Jesus uh, lived out and practice this community in his time here on earth. So we look at the life of Jesus. He um, came, came to the earth 2,000 years ago and set about by calling, establishing disciples, people that would come and follow him. And, he, and you read through the Gospels, he, he comes, comes to Simon Peter um, and his um, brother Andrew and says, hey, put down your nets Come follow me. I want to make you fishers of men. He goes to, to Matthew, the, the tax collector, and says, Follow me. Um, in John, we see he calls Nathaniel, who he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now come and follow me. And so there, there is the point I want to make here is that there is a personal call that Jesus has for each of his disciples, each of the people, to come and follow him. There is a personal invitation from Jesus to you where he looks you in the eye and says, my son, my daughter, 
I love you. Come and follow me. Come and follow my ways. But then from there, he, he slowly gathers this, this group of disciples. And the journey from there onwards is then together. They then, there's, a, there's an individual call, but then the journey from there out, actually outworking their discipleship is done together. They, you see them, they're on the road together, traveling between towns. They're, they're sitting down and eating meals together. They um, bear witness to Jesus' ministry together. They then minister to others together. They're equipped and empowered together. They learn together. All these things they do together. And then we get to the end of the Gospels and Jesus commissions them and sends them out together to go make other disciples. And we get to the beginning of Acts and Jesus' kind of final instruction to his disciples. He says, now go to, go to Jerusalem and wait there um, and you will receive power. Um, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so if we look at Acts chapter 2, 1 to 4, we have here the neck where the disciple Jesus has now ascended. And it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's a couple of things I want to highlight for us here um, in, this, in this couple of verses. Firstly, they were all together in one place. They were in community. They were together, gathered together in one place. Jesus had left, but they were still together. He had instructed them to wait together. And so what we see here is that there is a shared obedience to Jesus, to his instruction. Next up, if we go back, we've got they saw. Um, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. It wasn't just one person saw or an individual had a, had a bit of a, an epiphany. They saw collectively that there is a sense of there's a shared revelation that came for these disciples. And then finally, we see the tongues of fire separating. They came to rest on each of them and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a shared empowerment that happened as the disciples gathered together, as they continued their journey of discipleship together. So there was an individual call, and I'm sure many, if not most of you, have had that call. If you haven't, I'd love for you to meet Jesus today, because that call is real and the invitation is real and personal. But then the journey from there on is designed, it is within our nature to do that in community together with others. Now, I'm going to fast forward 1,700 years to, uh, to a gentleman by the name of George Whitfield. Hands up if you've heard of George Whitfield. Stellar gentleman. He was a revivalist, a, an evangelist, a preacher, and went around, traveled around the UK um, preaching. And then later on, he went to, to America <clears throat> and preached over there. And much of... Um, the revivals and the awakenings that happened in the, in the 18th century came from this man. It's estimated that he preached, preached around 18,000 sermons. Um, hefty number. Um, I think I'm on about 10. I've got a little, little ways to go. 
um, <clears throat> and that he preached to about 10 million people, um, which is a heck of a ministry. And part of his message and part of the, the resonance of his message is that he was preaching into a time and a culture um, that was being marked by a change in the era. It was moving um, into the industrial um, age. And so you saw people moving from towns and villages into, into cities, um, disruption to, to work and to family life. Um, and we saw along with that a whole lot of, um, yeah, let's say change in lifestyle. Um, it was fairly debaucherous and fairly um, not, not a great time to be alive, particularly if you were lower in the class. There's a lot of class systems around, upper, lower. And so he came with this message, this hope of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ into this, and he spoke truth that cut through in that time. And so we see, I suppose, a holy fire that he brings and, and that spreads um, from his ministry. But then around that time as well, there was another gentleman by the name of John Wesley. Hands up if you've heard of John. Good, we're fans of him here. Um, what John was able to do, he may not have been a, a, as good a preacher as George. Um, feels weird calling them by the first name, <laughs> George. <laughs> Mr. Whitfield, <clears throat> Reverend Whitfield. Um, he was able to bring, I suppose, some of the form to actually steward that fire. Um, he was able to go, all right, how do we help people who have said yes to Jesus, said, answered that call and that response to that, the Holy Spirit's um, kind of passion and fire within them? How do we actually help them now walk that out over the long haul? How do we take that so it actually transforms not just an individual, but actually transforms society? And so... Here, John Wesley really um, began what we know as small groups. He formed a, a couple of different groups that, that are quite well documented. Uh, one called Societies. Um, these are groups of maybe 50 to 100 people where there is teaching and instruction on, yes, you've come to know Jesus, but here's how you begin to actually walk that out. Here's how you take that, that passion, that, that Holy Spirit fire, and actually begin to live a life of holiness. And then within those societies, there were classes, groups of about seven to 12 people, where they then unpacked that teaching together and held, held each other accountable to actually walking that out. And then even smaller was bands. These are four to five people, um, men or women, where they actually really kept each other quite accountable. There's some of the questions, you look back at some of the questions they would ask each other is like, what sins did you do this week? You don't need to tell me right now, Paul. Um, <clears throat> but really, the pursuit was around holiness. It was around if we're actually going to allow the truth, the revelation of this gospel to take root and embed and actually transform us, transform this society, we need to pursue a life of holiness. And George, uh, not George, sorry, John, he Establish these groups with the, with the core conviction that you cannot do this by yourself. You cannot live out your faith simply by yourself. You cannot steward the call of Jesus by yourself and expect just to grow in that. And his, one of his quotes that has really stuck with me has been, is this one. He says, holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel 
than holy adulterers. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. And his instruction to these groups, and I suppose the vision to these groups, was simply watch over one another in love. Watch over one another in love. And I think there's something incredibly beautiful and significant in this, and I think something that we as a church, I'd love to capture this, that we are not just a bunch of individual disciples trying to do our own thing. Uh, We live in a time where where that is the inclination, to privatise your faith, to go inward. What would it actually look like to be awoken to the reality of you were called to be a disciple, to make other disciples, to encourage other disciples, and to do this very thing, to watch over one another in love. And so we're going to continue pursuing that as a church. Now, three principles that I've taken from how John Wesley structured his groups. One, he did it relationally. These were relational groups. They weren't cold. They weren't clinical. They were done relational. They were done in a setting, like I said, there was class systems. So you would be sitting alongside someone who earned a lot more than you and someone who earned a lot less than you. And so in that sense, he had to be connected. There had to be a love for the neighbour. It had to be done in relationship. The second is repeatedly. He knew that if anything was going to sustain the long haul, if people were actually going to go on that long journey together, it needed to be done repeatedly. He was adamant that groups had to meet weekly. Um, Often people were in societies and classes and bands, each on different nights, and so they'd be out Three, three nights or three days a week in, a, um, in one of a group. But it's just the repetition of it, the accountability that comes with that, the, the invitation to deeper um, vulnerability and connection with one another repeated over time and actually built something quite profound, quite significant that did go on to change society. And then finally, resiliently. Um, they were up, up against a lot. They were up against um, a religious system of the day um, that looked very different. They were up against, um, like I said, some pretty horrific behaviours and and things that were going on in the culture around them. But to continue to turn up, um, to continue to show up, to continue to say no to one thing, to say yes to this, they were resilient people. Now I just want to pause here. I have a, a friend who I, um, who I came to faith with um, around a similar age. We were kind of late teens, and we were both growing up in the church and that had a, had a bit of an um, uninspired idea of what church and the Christian life looked like. Um, but we came, both came to meet Jesus and had some, had, had some pretty profound revelations, and, and um, we began walking out. We, we started a Bible study group together, um, and we eventually moved in together and we are in a share house with a couple of other guys. And this guy became one of my, one of my closest friends. Um, <clears throat> he was the type of friend that um, we had a lot in common together. We really enjoyed hanging out. Um, but it was the type of friend that we would be up until 3 o'clock in the morning having deep, meaningful conversations, asking each other the hard questions, praying together. Um, the type of things that you can do when you're 20. Um, not doing much of that these days, but 
Power to you if you if you're still in can still do that anyway. Um, uh, and I, I'm just so grateful to have had a relationship like that and have someone that I actually got to journey through some of those formative years of my life um, life with. Um, I that this is back in South Australia where I, where I used to live. Um, I moved to Melbourne about 12 years ago, and by nature of moving interstate. Um, you kind of start to lose connection with, with people. Um, and yeah, our relationship kind of dropped away. And, and what, when we used to chat kind of every month or so when I moved over, it kind of changed to once every six months to eventually not really chatting at all. Um, but I just felt, came, I feel like God put him on my heart last year and I gave him a call and we caught up for the first time in a long time. And... Just, just to see how he's going, what's God, what's God up to, where, where is he at? And I remember thinking back when I was in that conversation, remembering back to when we were journeying together. His, um, his parents grew up in church, um, but they had been quite hurt um, by the church and had stepped away. They hadn't stepped away from faith. That was still there in the background, but they'd removed themselves from church. Um, and my friend, he had also just had some frustrations with, with the local church we were a part of that time, and um, he was unable to reconcile that and, and stepped out of, of gathering there as well. And it was interesting chatting with him 10, 12 years on, and there was a sense of grief as I was listening because he hadn't really moved beyond that time. He was still frustrated at the church. He was still uninspired about community. He was still looking for answers and um, desire, unfulfilled desires, if, uh, answers for those unfulfilled desires and had never really grown. And there was a real grief in that for me because I think what I, what I saw was someone who had been in bed, had had that call, had begun that journey with others and had stepped out for various reasons but had never found a way to actually step back in and continue that journey. And I found myself trying to, trying to minister to him and encourage him and, and consider what it would look like stepping back in because I know in my own life, and, and hopefully this is true for you, when we are immersed in community, when we're immersed amongst other believers intentionally journeying together, God reveals some beautiful stuff to us. He heals broken things with us. He reveals things about our, our gifts and the, the way he's wired us and what he's called us for. And so I share that story just to encourage you. Maybe you've got people in your life like that. How might you encourage them towards reengaging in community? Um, or maybe you feel like you're that person. Um, you've drifted away. Maybe you still turn up on a Sunday, but maybe that sense of deeper connection, of deeper vulnerability of, with one another, that sense of journeying alongside others in love um, is no longer there. What would it look like to actually not just be a coal outside of the fire, but actually be a coal back in the fire where it's stoked and warmed and able to actually then in turn stoke the fire as well? So to help us look forward, and how do, we, how do we do this? How do we journey this out here as a church? I just want to highlight three types of groups that commonly are found in churches. 
Um, now, you may be familiar with one or all of these, um, but the first one is affinity groups. Affinity groups are groups that are gathered around a shared interest. Maybe it's a stage of life, maybe it's a, a common interest, uh, maybe it's a book club or a mum's group or a, a, a dad's breakfast or, or something that you, you gather together with same stage of life, same interest. This, this, this is good, I connect with these people and there's a sense of ease uh, to that. The next type of groups uh, is information-based groups. Uh, these are groups that uh, typically gather around a piece of content or a curriculum. Um, one of the things around these groups is the, un kind of the, the understanding that, that if I have the right information, if I learn the right things, that will lead me to right Christian living. That will lead me to right holiness. And I'd say much of what we understand as modern-day small groups or discipleship groups probably fall into probably one of these two categories, maybe more information-based, particularly here in a place like Melbourne. Finally, the third group is transformation-based groups. These are groups that understand that transformation comes not by just being in relationship with people that are the same as you or knowing the right stuff or studying the right content, but by actually practicing and walking out a way in step with the Spirit, knowing that He is what transforms us. The Spirit of God is what actually transforms our hearts. And so we as a church, we are pressing into transformation-based groups. What we're doing moving forward, the, the options I'll, I'll present in a little bit are going to be transformation-based groups, groups that are going to be encouraging you to go deeper in intimacy with Jesus, to be stirring and stoking the fire within you, but not just for you, for others as well. So you can actually bring and encourage that and stir that up with it in others. And so what are some values of a transformation group? So the first value is transformation over information. I encourage you to jot these down as, as we go. Transformation over information. This, the, tr the truth is, um, and I think it's found in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, where he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep <clears throat> my laws. <clears throat> information alone isn't going to change, isn't going to change your heart. <clears throat> it might help give some tools, give some language to, might help kind of shape some of your perspective a bit more. But it is God, it is His Holy Spirit power that leads us into transformation. Um, and that is the call that we, are, that we have as disciples. In Paul's language, to move from the old self into the new self, to be transformed. I, I have, and, and look, I, I say this in full awareness that I, and I, I'm, I'm the first guy to like, all right, great message, let's make a curriculum out of this. Let's get those key questions, let's get them into groups, let's get people asking that, let's form the right perspective. I, there's so much goodness in books, there's so many podcasts that I enjoy listening to 
But if I actually think back to what has actually changed me, those things have been good to help inform, but what has actually changed my heart, what has actually healed the broken places within me has been God's power, has been that, that Holy Spirit presence that has actually led to new life, things that no book alone could actually change or heal within me. And so our groups are going to be, yeah, have that value of transformation over information. Next up, we've got holy expectancy over expectations. Uh, the first message of this series Mark spoke was, um, was around this, how do we raise our expectation of what is God wanting to do at this time? But also, what would it look like to turn up to a group, to your group, to be a part of a new group with holy expectations on what, what might he do when we gather together? What might he want to speak to you and encourage you with because you're in the presence of other like-minded believers? What would he want to actually call your group to? What, what does being sent look like together? And this is in, in, in contrast to expectations, to turning up with, this is what I expect the group to deliver for me. Um, this is what... I hope I get out of it, um, to, to actually flip that from expectations to holy expectancy. The next value we have is surrender to shame. This, I think, was so crystallised for me and, and captured, I suppose, a renewed vision for me when we did so, around the Soul Care Conference together. Just seeing people, I think what, what I noticed as a pastor People that I've journeyed with for three plus years, I saw do, go through the same amount of work in about two hours. There's something that happens as we allow the truth that Jesus wants to set you free, that he wants to heal broken relationships, heal deep wounds. He wants to actually lead you into spaces of freedom, of life, of joy, of hope again. But in order to do that, we need to surrender. We need to, where shame has marked us, where shame has caused us to go inward and look upon ourselves, we're called to, to a posture of surrender to actually be, learn to be vulnerable. And if, I think what I've realised, if, if, if we can't be vulnerable, if we can't truly be vulnerable with others, I don't know if we can truly be vulnerable with God. So how do we surrender in those spaces, in community, to allow that transforming, that renewing work within us. And finally, social investing over social loafing. Uh, hands up if you've heard of social loafing before. Grace, thank you. I think you actually get credit for this one. Um, <clears throat> social loafing, for those who aren't aware, is the phenomenon where people tend to exert less effort to achieve a goal when they work in a group than when working alone. A baseline example of this is tug of war. Uh, if you have, if it was just Terry and I up here, tugging of war, tug, tug, war, tug, doing that thing, <laughs> we would be exerting 100% effort trying to pull each other over the line. If we had 10 of us on each side, you would likely exert maybe 70, 60% of effort knowing that there's other people that are pulling as well. That's kind of the baseline example. You will exert less effort if more people are around. I think if you've been part of a, a study group at high school or uni, you'll probably be aware of this in others, I'm sure, um, where suddenly in your group project and 
someone just decides, you know what, they've probably got it. I'll, I'll let them carry the load. Um, but I think this is true for, for, for our church and for our groups and stuff as well. It's the prayer meeting where if we just had three of us there, we would all be praying fervently. But suddenly there's 30 people there. And like, oh, actually, I might let, let the, they're probably a bit better at praying, so I'll let them pray. And you find yourself pairing back a little bit. Um, but the flip side of that is social investing, and I think this is a value we really want to instill because the reality is this dynamic is what will probably make or break groups in our day and age. Social investing is the opposite of this. It's where being in the presence of others actually spurs you on, actually rallies you to the greater cause, the greater mission and vision that the group has and improves what you could do by yourself. It actually elevates that and increases that. And one of the dynamics I, I think that come, plays out in this, this uh, value social investing versus social loafing is what I'll call the three-hour fork in the road. So say you're in a group, meets at 7.30 on a Thursday night, and it's 4.30 at the office, and you're like, it's been a big week. I'm actually feeling a bit tired. It's raining outside. You know, I think, I, think, I think I need to rest. I just need a night in just to rest and just kind of refresh myself. So I was going to shoot off a text message and just let them know I won't be, won't be able to be there tonight. And can I just say, this has gotten so much easier in our time. I was chatting to Mark about this during the week. 20 years ago, you had to pick up the phone or like see someone at the shops three days before and let them know that you might not be there. So now just being able to fire off a quick text message and say, I'm tired, it's so easy. But that comes with the assumption of everyone else will be there and I won't really be missed. And so you kind of socially loaf. So if we come back to that three-hour fork in the road, the other option might be, actually, what might God want to do? What if my presence being there actually activates something in someone else and the Spirit uses that to reveal something beautifully profound and sweet to them that they would not have heard otherwise? What if me turning up actually begins to shape a new culture for this group and in our wider church community, knowing that we're all in this together, we're all investing, we're all anticipating what God might want to do and what He wants to speak and reveal for us, but for others, and actually shape a new culture in a church, in a city as well. I want to propose to you that social investing is what's going to build the kingdom moving forward. And this, I suppose, is the Platforms to Pillars series we did. Social investing is being a pillar and turning up regularly. So just think about that next time you're in a group and it's three hours beforehand and your cat's just vomited. What way do I go? Um, so I've just outlined a few values there. Um, that first one of transformation, of holy expectancy, of surrender and social investing. Which one of these do you need to lean, lean into? Maybe you're already in a group and you're like, yeah, I actually need to, I've been turning up, I'm regular, but I haven't really let people in on what's going on. Maybe it's, yeah, I'm there, but 
I know. Guy's a little bit weird, talks a bit too much. What would it actually look like to come with holy expectancy, to expect that God might actually want to awaken and stir something afresh in your time together in that group? What do you need to lean into? So next year, 2024, it's coming up quick. We want to invite you into spaces where you're able to live this out, where you're actually able to step into transformation-based groups. So we've got things like huddles. Um, We'll be relaunching. These are groups of um, four to five people. We've got discipleship groups. Um, We'll be kicking off again seven to 12 people. Uh, We've got courses. We've run a few courses throughout this year, which have been really helpful. Um, Prayer course, awakening, pattern intensive. We're doing starting new one community intensive. Um, We've got got courses happening. And then we've got our prayer rhythms as well. We've got Tuesday night prayer group, which if you were here a couple of weeks ago and heard some of the testimonies that have come out of that space, that is so rich and so beautiful. And just people investing in that continually turning up has been significant. And so... Our invitation to you is we'd love to have you part. We'd love to help you step into that that posture of being there for transformation for yourself and for others as well, to watch over one in love. Now, a couple of things, though. You will 100% need to give something up to do this. Part of our rhythm we want to look at doing next year is meeting weekly, that groups meet weekly, and you will need to give something up to do that, most likely. Maybe that's a sport. Maybe that's doing overtime at the office. Maybe that's just comfort. Um, I, I did, in, in preparing, I did read the stats in Australia. There was 100, 168 hours in a week. 40, on average, Australians will sleep 49 hours of that 168. They will spend, on average, 14 hours of that week watching TV. Um, shockingly, they'll spend 38 hours of that week on their phone. And so my guess is that you actually do have time (laughs) that one or two hours a week to gather with other believers, to actually be coal back in the fire, to be able to spur one another on, to actually build something new and significant for our time is possible, and we want to help you do that. Now, just to, to, to wrap up, we started with looking at the disciples in Acts 2 at the beginning and then the commitment of gathering together, of, of allowing the revelation and the empowerment to happen together. But we just want to fast forward to the end of Acts, um, Acts 2, sorry, um, which is the, the, the passage which I'm, I'm sure you've heard before, where it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in their temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Kevin Watson, again, he says, in Acts 2, reconciliation with God leads to a community that practices newfound faith and celebrates this reconciliation. The church created by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is communal from start to finish. 
The community of faith is so important in Acts 2 that one could hardly separate the faith of the individual from that of the community. And I love this arc that the disciples gathered together obediently following Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of it. They see thousands coming to know Jesus. They see activation in their gifts. They see hospitality like nothing else that's seen. They saw radical generosity. They saw the favour of God at work in their midst and in their time. And so what would it look like for us to be a church that has that same vision to actually gather together, to watch over one another in love, to allow our hearts to be set in step with the Spirit, to be transformed and renewed by Him, to encourage that in one another. And what if, what if the renewal that God wants to bring is actually similar to that of Whitfield and Wesley, where it actually goes out and changes a whole society, a whole culture, because there's a group of faithful people going on the long journey together and establishing something new to steward the fire of God for their time. So I'd love to pray over us as we end, because this is not an easy thing. This is not something we can do in our own strength. Um, We're not meant to do it in our own strength. Um, If you are, it'll probably go dry and boring and you'll start to check out. So I want to pray, but also just want to pray for people that perhaps have been hurt by community and perhaps need a fresh vision or or, um, taste of what that could be again to to allow the spirit to perhaps awaken something in you. So would you stand with me as I pray to close? Mm, Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us in our midst? I thank you for the gift of community. I thank you for the very nature of you is one of community, that you have designed and wired us to be in that with you and with others as well. And we realise we live in a time where that, unfortunately, is countercultural or it's been washed down and we have some, um, some other weird version of that in our minds. We want to pray that you would actually renew our vision of what it means to be in communion, fellowship, in step with one another. Allow that vision to watch over one another in love, rise in our hearts, let that give us eyes to see our neighbour as you see them. Let us begin to lift our eyes from ourselves and know that we are called to be a blessing and steward something for one another as well. And God, I want to pray for those of us who have been hurt by community. I think of my friend who was hurt and has drifted away. God, you know those things. You know perhaps the words that have been spoken. You know the the actions that have been done against. That you want to set the captives free. You actually want to remind people of the truth of who they are, not what someone said about them 20 years ago but of what you say about them now. You want to actually remind that you have called them by name to go and make disciples, to actually be a blessing in the nations. And so would you awaken, would you both heal and restore people, redeem where it is, um, has held people captive? But then would you awaken a greater vision for us? And I want to pray over our church, over our communities, that we would no longer settle for cheap visions 
of what getting together looks like? Would we have a greater heart, a greater longing, a greater desire, a greater passion, knowing that when you turn up in our midst, when two or three are gathered in your name, you are there with us and there is spiritual significance and consequence to that reality. So stir something deeper within us, Holy Spirit. And we look forward in anticipation what you've got for us next year. Would you build something in you for our sake, for this church's sake, but also for this city and this nation's sake. Let us be a countercultural promise and hope for what life alongside other people can look like. We love you, Jesus. Let's worship.